I am Dr. Lamont Repolette, New Jersey's Commissioner of Education. Welcome to the DOE Digest, a podcast from the New Jersey Department of Education. It is a platform for information exchange in which the department will highlight the work being done by innovative and transformative educators around the state. I have been working to redesign the Department of Education to what I call NJDOE 2.0. This podcast is one of the ways that we utilize our digital platform to help strengthen teaching, leading, and learning and increase educational equity for the 1.4 million students across New Jersey. I hope you enjoyed today's topic. Hello and welcome to the DOE Digest. I'm your host, Ken Bond. The topic of this episode is trauma, the brain, and what schools can do to create trauma-informed environments. When I was a teacher, I worked with students who fled violence in their home countries before coming to the town I worked in. Many of the tools discussed in this episode would have been really helpful for me as I was thinking about how to work with these students and how to help them deal with their trauma and their stress. I look forward to hearing from you listeners about how you apply these ideas in your classroom, school, and district. Make sure you join us to discuss what you've learned from this episode on the hashtag NJEdPartners third Tuesday Twitter chat, which will be taking place on November 19th, 2019 at 8.30 p.m. Now let's get to the episode. My name is Dr. Denise Sandoli. I am a school psychologist here um, for the Union City School District. I'm part of the child study team. And my name is Stephanie Cedeno, and I am a school social worker here in the Union City School District, as well as part of the school-based Youth Services Program team, and I'm also a licensed clinical social worker in the state of New Jersey. Denise and Stephanie are experts in trauma and have been working at the Union City School District with students who have faced very difficult situations and high levels of toxic stress. I sat down with them to discuss what trauma is, how it affects the brain, and how teachers can think about helping students who have dealt with trauma. The conversation starts off with a definition from Dr. Denise Sandoli about what trauma is and how she defines it. Trauma is an unimaginable, life-threatening event that is so stressful, it overwhelms our human capacity to adapt to the event or cope with it. And this is going to tie into this trauma theory by a Dr. Janoff Bowman. She spoke about this theory known as shattered assumptions. And it's a big part of what I'm always using to view our students with trauma because basically what it means is we all have these assumptions about our world. Very, you know, mundane example, red light means stop, green light means go. The same way we have these assumptions about our world, that it's supposed to be a safe place, and that the people in our world are going to treat us well. So when something like trauma happens that threatens our life in some way, or the life of someone we know, those, assumption, those assumptions are shattered, sort of thrown out the window, and makes us feel like our world is now this topsy-turvy place. What also gets shattered is this assumption that the trauma, which is usually occurring in the hands of someone that we know and trust, there's this um, another term called failed empathy that occurs. So it's sort of like, hey, you're my, my loved one. You know this is hurting me, but you're still doing it. That really throws us off. So what ends up happening is we end up feeling sort of out of control of our world, um, very helpless, very powerless, 
tons of um, PTSD type symptoms can occur and overall our, our whole brain circuitry just gets disrupted. Trauma truly is a brain disruption. And just to add to what Dr. Sandoli just uh, defined for us, it's important also to look at trauma as a concept and you know, not everybody experiences the event the same way. So although the event is very objective and measurable, experience is very subjective and personal. So I think it's important also to see it as kind of like three elements to it, the event, the experience, and then also how it affects us. So the effect, right? The three E's, you know? The three E's. Mm -hmm. Three E's are big. I'm going to throw in another acronym. So ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experience, and it comes from a study, actually a longitudinal study from, I think, Kaiser? 1995 yeah. to 1997. Yeah. Yes, it was, it was a partnership with the CDC and Kaiser Permanente. I read before this podcast. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> ACE would say there's um, four types of trauma um, for, for children related to these adverse childhood events. You have sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and neglect. You have protective factors and risk factors that are already in place when the traumatic event occurs that can affect and vary from from person to person Mm -hmm. how the trauma will affect them. ACEs are so impactful because they can lead to trauma. In this next segment, Dr. Sandoli discusses the effects of trauma on the brain as well as the science behind it. Trauma is a brain disruptor because it sets off or triggers a biological stress response in the brain. Things like, I'm sure everyone has heard of cortisol, our cortisol levels Mm -hmm. go up. Our amygdala, which is very much responsible for our fear response, that gets put in motion. Once this apparatus gets turned on, this biological stress response in the brain, we segue from what is called like a relax and digest mode that we're sitting in right now, talking to each other, to a fight, flight, freeze response. In my research um, 10 years ago when I was working with Rwandan genocide survivors, they told us through the qualitative study, it really is, we segue into our survivor self. It was this amygdala, you know, and um, cortisol response and all the other brain circuitry that that we have that kept our human race alive. The thing um, that happens with children's brains when they experience trauma and this, this response occurs, it can affect their development. So let's break it down. It's going to affect our behaviors, all the parts in our brain that are responsible for our behaviors. It's going to affect our thoughts, how we think about ourselves and others, and it's going to affect our emotions. The biggest word to remember about what trauma can do to a a developing child's brain is dysregulation. Mm -hmm. That's in a nutshell what I'm talking about. The brain just gets dysregulated. Our homeostasis is thrown off and we're just sort of in this like I was saying, topsy-turvy state of up no longer feels up, it feels like down, left no longer feels left, it feels like right. And we're really struggling to manage ourselves and regulate ourselves. And that can include things such as sleep, eating, in addition to our thoughts, feelings, and uh, behaviors. I think another way to look at it too is that there's the learning brain and then there's the survival brain. And that survival brain, if it's constantly uh, activated, uh, that student will not be able to access that information that's being given to them, you know, because they're so hyper aware of their environment, they're not trusting of the individuals that are surrounding them. And so it puts them in this very precarious state. 
So this toxic stress. So those cortisol hormones Mm -hmm. or or otherwise known as the stress hormones are constantly being excreted, right? So that is something that we need to be aware of because if our students are in our classrooms and they're constantly in this state, the stress hormone is constantly, you know, being activated in their bodies, they're not going to be able to focus. They're not going to be able to really be present, right? We want to get our students to be present so that they're able to learn and activate that learning brain, like I was saying before. So just it's it's so important to to know what's going on, not right. just, you know, in, in terms of um, uh, the brain, but in every other aspect of what's going on in the body. School is a social setting and students can struggle to make social connections when they've experienced trauma. The conversation shifted from the effects of trauma on the brain to how to structure schools, classrooms, and relationships with students so that they can be trauma-informed. Mental health is connection. We are social beings. Mm -hmm we need to have connections. So if you tie that now into trauma, trauma- Those are severed connections. Yes, disrupts those connections. They call trauma being doubly punished Mm -hmm. because not only does the trauma survivor have to deal with the impact of the traumatic event, there's so much taboo and guilt and shame around trauma that it ends up quite often being a secret. So those social, you know, relationship, community connections get severed. Yeah. Um, and that's the doubly punished part. So all this is so important to know as educators so that we can put in place, you know, the supports these children mm-hmm. need because it really does impact their learning. It's, so it's definitely um, a team effort. Mm-hmm. I think at a macro level, making sure our professionals have trauma training. So as much as as we can be educated and then share that awareness with the team that is going to be working with the student. It really, you know, not to sound cliche, takes a village to, to be able to offer that understanding and the validation and support that the student needs to ultimately help them be a successful student. Communication, like Dr. Sandoli said, is very important, getting to know who they are because they are so different. They're so very different, and who knows what they have you know, what, what they're presenting with, right? And so some of the strategies, and, and teachers can be as creative as they want to be. Um, I've walked this t- into some classrooms where, where there's a um, negotiation station. So like a corner where uh, the teacher takes a disruptive student, and instead of taking punitive actions against that student, there's a discussion. There's communication about what are we going to do with this right now? How can we work together to solve this issue? How can you help me in this classroom? Empower them so that they can be leaders in the classroom when they're being highly disruptive or, you know, calling for too much attention from the teacher uh, or from their peers. You know, I I just found that to be such a great idea, a negotiation station. Working with our English language learners, we have found that the students sharing their narrative and through art or through uh, um, an essay or through poetry really helps them kind of navigate what they've experienced especially we're talking about migration right which can you know that's so many levels pre-migration to the journey and then to post resettlement we're finding that so many of these students are dealing with trauma or exposure to trauma during these three phases so sharing that story uh, is very empowering and teachers can do this through you know 
uh, uh, writing or art. There's so many different ways where a student can share their story. And that's a part of the healing process, being able to share your story. I know uh, in our county, NAMI has provided uh, psychoeducation to our families in Spanish. And that's been really, really important because we have to talk about mental illness, but we have to understand it, but we have to, we have to uh, teach it in their language. Another group that, that we have here that are very vulnerable are our LGBTQI plus students. And I know that in our school, under our school-based youth services program, we have a pride club. And that pride club, which is also known in many schools as a GSA, it's a Gay Street Alliance, provides that peer support that we were talking about before, uh, that mutual aid among uh, students that are LGBTQI. And because they can understand one another and they help each other through the process of, of recovery. You know, um, a lot of them have, have been exposed to trauma. So being, a, being able to have a group like that is very powerful and gives a voice to those that generally wouldn't have a voice. And the same goes with our ELL students, right, uh, our Ls. Um, giving them a voice is very important because they often feel these are groups that are marginalized and oppressed. So if we can help empower them, give them the tools to, to be empowered, that can help with the alleviation of a lot of the effects of trauma. It's not only important for teachers to acknowledge and respond to the trauma that students have experienced, but also to acknowledge and respond to the trauma that they themselves have experienced. Stephanie starts off with practical tips for teachers to consider and think about their own well-being as they work with students who have experienced trauma. Make sure that you take care of yourself, that you set a practice to uh, uh, debrief because if not, it's going to cause a vicarious trauma. And the stories that we hear every day, we're at risk for experiencing a secondary trauma or a vicarious trauma. So we, be, we need to be very aware of, of how this impacts us personally, right? Because we are also human and there's that connection. We want to be able to help our students thrive. They're, they're surviving and we want them to thrive, but we also have to check in with self and how am I doing today? Because of the, these stories are really difficult. We feel helpless, like what, how can I help this child? And sometimes part of that is that we can't. And I think in that helplessness, we sometimes feel like defeated. So that self-care is important in those moments. Self-care can mean talking to a colleague about how it felt, um, you know, processing what it was like helping that student or teaching that student, you know, and hearing that story. So using your colleagues to, to, to debrief, to talk about these difficult feelings that come up for you as a human being, you know, working with children and adolescents. So it's very real. A teacher can be tipped off that they need to speak to someone they, when they find that what they've experienced is affecting some, some part of their daily functioning. So that could be in their relationships, that could be in their professional functioning, um, that could be in their hobbies, losing in interest in things. So I think as much as we can, and this is at every tier, you know, for our, for our students, for our staff, for each other, destigmatize mental health by normalizing, normalizing it, yeah. these conversations so that we mm -hmm. can, you know, seek out that peer-to-peer -peer support and say, you know, I'm really struggling. I'm not sleeping, to, you know, the last few nights. 
or I keep having these angry outbursts with my partner. I don't know, you know, what's going on. And they started ever since I was helping out that one student who had this traumatic event. The vicarious trauma is a real thing. Um, so I think the more that we can normalize these conversations, it will really help all of us as caregivers be able to provide that support. After visiting Union City, I was able to go to another inspiring site of practice, the Ocean City School District, which is one of our lighthouse school districts. They've created an environment that embraces students who have experienced trauma and have implemented a wellness room as well as other services to ensure that students are given the resources they need to succeed. I'm Stephanie Grissinger. I am the school social worker and student assistance counselor at Ocean City Intermediate School. I'm Tafea Noble. I'm the mental health social worker for Ocean City School District. I'm Jill Baronado, certified school nurse and student assistance coordinator for Ocean City High School. I'm Matthew Carey, director of student services, uh, district administrator. When you're talking with other school staff, how do you explain the importance of trauma-informed care? Tafea Noble. So one of the things I think are, is really important um, when you're informing people about trauma-informed care is that in an educational system, we want students can't learn if they're stressed or they're anxious or they're going through things. Because if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what's the first thing that we have to make sure is okay? Safety, security, make sure they're not hungry and they have enough sleep. So one of those things, if we make sure that that's okay, they'll be able to learn and, and be able to process things that's in school. So we try to make sure that we provide the wellness center that's here for them to come to and we just try to make sure that we let everybody know if these certain needs aren't met they won't be able to academically be able to learn. Um, our message goes all the way back to 2015 and it began with our ad hoc uh, Board of Education meeting to address mental health and wellness and the reason we did this was so that the entire community was involved in it. Um, we had stakeholders from from every aspect of our community, police, fire, parents, community members without children in the school district, aides, cafeteria workers, uh, teachers, specialists, board of education members, and, and the entire administration. And that really showed the commitment that we had as a district to mental health and wellness for our students. And then from that original ad hoc board of education meeting sprang an action plan. And that action plan included a pointed focus on mental health and wellness, and that's where the ideas for the wellness centers came. So uh, how, can, how can a district create a safe environment so that students who have experienced trauma can learn and build positive relationships? What, what, what can districts do to really create that safe space? It's Jill. We've created our wellness rooms, which has become a place for our students that is safe, it's comfortable, it's confidential. One of the most intriguing things that we found from creating the room is our decrease in homebound numbers. In school year 2017 to 2018, we had 37 homebound students that were out for medical and or mental health related issues. And the year we created the wellness room, that number decreased to 12. For us, it kind of proves that what we're doing is working. We're encouraging the kids to come to school. They feel comfortable enough. If they're having a moment, they know where they can go. So with the success that we've had with the room at the high school, our administration thought that it would be necessary and also helpful to open one at the intermediate school, which has been just as successful so far. It's Stephanie. 
The students for grades four through eight are in the intermediate school, and we too have problems with students coming to school, staying in school, and my role with the wellness center is they have a safe place to go, and they know that. So whether a parent calls me and says that they're struggling in the morning, I'll go meet them outside. And because I've built a rapport with the students so far, the student will walk inside with me. We will go to my room, figure out a solution, and I get them back to class. The school nurse has also been involved in, in identifying students who might need the wellness center, and I go over there and help them figure out what they need to do and, and make them feel secure and ready to go back to class as well. Could you walk me through what it's like to step into a wellness room? When my students or parents walk into my room or other staff, they just feel a sense of calm. Um, they come in, they see that it's not a typical room. There are comfortable seating arrangements, there are coloring books around, there's um, kinetic sand. I have relaxing music playing on the big screen. You know, so there it's warm and welcoming and it's just inviting and you know, people feel comfortable being in there and they don't feel the pressures of being in a classroom. The peer support for the intermediate school is important because it shows our students that they're not alone in these situations, whether it's something they lost a relative to substance abuse or their dog passed away or they're really struggling in sports. You know, they have lots of different feelings and when they know that somebody else has those feelings, they're more likely to open up. They're more likely to feel more normal. You know, and that helps them to really feel like they're, they're someone important and that they're able to get through each day and that they're not alone. Um, and we also extend our roles. You know, we have the wellness centers, but we do go to classroom to classroom and kind of educate the students on topics such as suicide, um, life skills, things like that. And we also have students that kind of um, facilitate groups in the wellness center. This is Matt. When we were discussing um, the question that came up about establishing a safe environment and who the trusted adult is, um, one of the things that we did in preparation for the ad hoc committee was to, to talk to our students. And a lot of our students were unable to identify a safe place that they would go uh, or a trusted adult that they would go to. And that was kind of alarming to us. So we wanted to create that spot for them and that they would have a generic answer. And I mean that in the sense of generic that it would be the same around. So if I asked a student, who's your trusted adult at the high school, they would say, Miss Jill, who's my trusted adult? at the intermediate school, it would be Miss Stephanie. If it was somebody who I was who was working in the mental health, you know, department, it would be Miss Faye. Well a lot of a lot of our peer support groups come from student ideas. So we may be working with a number of students and then we see this ideas coming up. Like one of the things that we deal with with students a lot is anxiety. So we developed the one of the groups called the Power of Positive Thinking. It's a lunch group, so it's a fifty-five minute group. They, they would eat lunch here in the Wellness Center as we run the group, so then that way they're not missing academic time, which will make them more anxious. So that's why we do it during lunch. During the positive, Power of Positive Thinking group, we talk about, we discuss coping skills, we talk about being anxious. Sometimes students share ideas with one another, what works and what didn't work, and it's really they're just supporting one another. We do sometimes art therapy activities within the group. The way that students will get referred is by a guidance counselor or, or themselves, um, Jill and I will hang flyers up and throughout the school. We'll go to the different classrooms and sometimes, you know, let them know what's going on. We'll email particular parents and say, hey, we run this, this group. Your student might or your child may be interested in this group. You may want to sign them up. So we try to do a variety of ways to 
recruit students or we have students tell other students they may have come to the group prior and then they'll bring their friend for the next round and then they'll come down. My role is unique in that I provide counseling, mental health counseling for students here. And not only do I provide the mental health counseling here, I help to um, connect parents to services that are outside in the community for the students. I do many of the screenings here. There may be students that I see that may be self-harm or suicidal thoughts or know that they have something going on with them, very anxious or depressed, and they don't know what to do and they need a particular sort of help within the community as far as a psychiatrist, a therapist, or a pediatrician. My job is to work with them to try to to first calm them down and teach them techniques, but to also reach out to their parents to get them to connected to the services that they need, that they need within the community. There's one number, the Family Contacts Perform Care, that's the youth hotline for services within New Jer the state of New Jersey. If they contact Perform Care, Perform Care will help them set up, not only find out a service that takes their insurance, but it'll help them find therapists within their community where they live and also connect them to the service and get everything set up. A lot of times when parents are trying to help get services, the system, it's hard, it's hard. And you know, they made phone calls and trying to get connections. So that number, Perform Care is a great place to call to get them set up, get the insurance checked out, get them the appointment and get them everything they need. It's like their one-stop shop for services. To end the episode today, I wanted to leave you with a particularly moving story from Jill about the difference that the wellness room or the wellness center made in one student's life. I had a particular student uh, last year that had just moved in district, which for any child of any age is very difficult. And what the staff does here is guidance counselor usually brings them down to the wellness room first to say, hey, this is who you can go to. We understand you're new if you need anything. The student was very, very guarded, very guarded, had a tough background and they happened to come on the day that we had the therapy dogs. And I took a second and said, hey, do, do you like animals? Yeah, I love dogs. My dog passed away a few years ago. And in walked the therapy dog, and the look on this child's face was nothing short of amazing. And we could actually see the tears in his eyes of just comfort. He had moved from many states away, and within minutes, he's rolling on the floor, snuggling the dog. It was just that sense of relief that we all kind of looked at each other and thought, okay, this is why we're doing this. This is why we're here. And the student has been thriving ever since. Every day we see him in the hallway. He's happy. He's well adjusted. His grades are doing wonderful. So just that little tiny five minute session with the dog, with support from people that he had never even met before, just helped just enough to get him through the rest of his year. So it was a nice moment. Thank you to all the guests, to Union City and Ocean City for their hospitality, and special thanks to Elizabeth Thomas, who types up the transcripts for all of these episodes. I hope that you're able to join us for the November 19th hashtag NJEdPartners Twitter chat at 8.30 p.m. It will be a great time of discussion around trauma, trauma-informed care, and the brain. We look forward to continuing to connect and engage with you about educating the 1.4 million students around the state and hope to talk to you on the hashtag NJEdPartners third Tuesday Twitter chat. You can subscribe to the podcast channel for DOE Digest through your iPhone in the Apple Podcast app or wherever else you listen to podcasts so that you can get new episodes when they are released. Also, please leave us a review through the Apple Podcast app on your iPhone. It is the best way to help new listeners find us. 
Neither the New Jersey Department of Education nor its officers, employees, or agents specifically endorse, recommend, or favor views expressed by those interviewed. Discussion of resources are not endorsements. Thanks so much for listening.